is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. Very pleased to be joined today by Shaheen Shayan. Shaheen is a serial entrepreneur. He has an absolutely fascinating story. Uh, Shaheen made over a billion dollars in revenue when he was 18, uh, making us uh, all look like slackers over here. Uh, that success was a result of a substance he, call- he created called Herbal Ecstasy, which we're going to get into. Uh, he then went on to start off with uh, several ventures and is now the CEO of a company called Accelerated Intelligence. So, Sheen, thanks so much for being with me. It's awesome to be on. I love this show's name. I hope I don't suffer from electile dysfunction. <laughs> cool. I, I appreciate that. Um, so start off here with, with your background. So you're an immigrant who came uh, as a refugee. Uh, from Iran after the Iranian Revolution, which is a, a story that's near and dear to my heart. My mother and her family obviously made the same journey over at the same time. How old were you when you came to the United States? And uh, walk us through how your, your entrepreneurial journey began. Five years old, when we left Iran, I was king of the heap over there. And everything was great. I fit in perfectly, had friends, family. We were well-to-do. And the revolution happened. My parents were Iranian Jews. They feared persecution. So they were like, dude, we're, we're out. Literally ran to the plane via Germany and then came to this country as refugees. And I was like, this is cake. I got this. Walked into school and I was like, oh, shit. I'm a fucking third class citizen, man. Like whatever the minorities were in those days, I was like two levels below them. And those guys spoke English. I didn't speak English. So I thought for several years that what happened at school is you got your ass kicked because that was the normal thing for me. And I would go to school and it was the eighties. There was, there was not as much political correctness as we have now. And I would get my ass handed to me every single freaking day. And I realized that I had to find a way to bring myself up, which led me to my first entrepreneurial slash criminal enterprise, which was, gathering all the misfits, all the kids that did not belong in the school and employing them for one of two things, either a becoming the purveyors of contraband items, nudie magazines, porno magazines, alcohol, cigarettes, candy, whatever it was that you weren't allowed to sell at school. And we had, I had a little Greek kid. He was like a little person. He was really cute. Um, but he could slide under the, the metal detectors at the store. So he would go in wearing baggy clothes. We would create some kind of ridiculous distraction and he would take the little bottles of alcohol and the porno magazines, and then we would sell them at the school. And as my English got better, my business skills got better. I realized I was really good at making money, but simultaneously I realized I was really fucking bad at crime. I would always get caught. I would always end up in detention. I would end up in the principal's office. There would be no time where I would be doing crime where I would not get caught. So I remembered like making a, a mental note, like a mental bookmark. Like Shaheen, there's people that are good at crime. You're not one of them. You should not be doing crime in the future. 
which leads me up the path. Now I'm 15, terrible at school. And looking at this little enclave that my folks, the, the one correct business decision that they made, we were solidly poor compared to everybody that was coming up around us. My dad worked at a dry cleaners and at a pizza shop and just trying to make ends meet, scraping together money to buy used Toyota. I remember we, we never ate at restaurants. I didn't even know what a restaurant was. And I remember seeing all this wealth all around me, all these rich kids at the school around me. I remember going to this kid's house and he's like, yeah, my folks are out, but we can just get whatever we want. I said, what? He said, yeah, just order. And he handed me a menu. And I was like, mind fucking blown. I was like, wait, 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 wait. I can order the pizza and the pasta and someone's going to bring this to me. He's like, yeah, yeah, get whatever you want. I'm like, how are you going to pay for this? This costs money. He's like, oh, just a credit card. And I was like, okay, this is fucking it. This is the bomb. I want this. So I went to my folks and I said, you know, mom, that first, first off, you know, you, there's these menus you can order and people will bring you food. And they laughed. And I said, well, I, I want to be rich too. I want to have a Porsche. I want to have a, a, a beautiful girlfriend and a fast car and like all this great stuff. How do I get that? How do I get rich? And my folks looked at me and they looked at each other and in a moment of deep contemplation. And, and it went to where, as you, as you know, every immigrant family's dream, the pinnacle of success, my friend. Shaheen, you should be a doctor. Go talk to Mr. Ironi across the street. He's doctor. He is fabulous. I was like, all right, fuck. Let me go talk to this fucking dude. So I went down the street, met this guy. He's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, fuck, man. He's fat and fucking miserable. And I looked at his wife and she's fat and bald and miserable. And I looked at the kids and they're fat and bald and miserable. And I'm like, man, like, he's like, I got to go. He never had more than two minutes. The guy wakes up at 5 a.m. He comes home at like 8 p.m. He's miserable. The wife is yelling. The kids are yelling. Every, everyone's mad at everybody. And I was like, dude, if this is the pinnacle of success, I'm fucking out. And at this time, I'd been reading a lot of the old-timey success books, a lot of the old-timey help, uh, like Think and Grow Rich and Augmentino and old, old Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer and personal development. I knew that there was a path to success. So I just said, fuck it. I burned my ships. I left home, cut ties with my friends, cut ties with my family, great to their dismay. And I slept in an abandoned car for a while. I slept on the beach for a while. I started to learn that, hey, if you made friends with brokers, they would give you the code to the lockboxes to buildings. And you could sneak in at night and sleep in these newly developed buildings before they're completely finished. Maybe they didn't have power. And then be out by the morning and, and live an okay life. I learned that hanging out at the community college, you could get free food because they served food and all kinds of special events there. So I learned to get by and I, I managed to get myself a mentor and I fell into the rave scene, the electronic music scene that was going on in the 1990s. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this is amazing, but all these motherfuckers are broke. They're all broke. They're all doing drugs. They're, they're, they're having a good time. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. The industry was very different back then. The 1990s sort of EDM was, uh, you know, the, the, the monetization and the financialization of it was, was at different spades and where, where it is today. Like who was famous back then, by the way, in the 90s? Do, do you remember? Oh, like, in, in the 90s, we had uh, Doc Martin. We had Ron Decor. We had Steve Loria. We had, uh, I think Marcus Wyatt was playing back then. We had the, the Mushroom Jazz guy. We had Future Sound of London. We had Brilliant. We had, we had a lot of great guys playing back then. Um, but... I started looking and I was like, dude, you know who's making the money at these things? It's the drug dealers. Mm -hmm. the, the people that are selling the ecstasy. Now, I was at the right place at the right time. During this time, the quality of ecstasy had dramatically declined. It was mostly made in the UK and 
Amsterdam, uh, particularly, and they had stopped the flow of it to the United States. And people here, for whatever reason, didn't know how to produce it. The drug dealers had very low supply, but the demand was increasing. And I thought, fantastic. Look at these guys. They got the, the Ferrari. They got the pretty girl. They're like the hit of the party. And they're the rich. They got all kinds of money. Like, I'll just be one of these guys. That's what I'll do. I'll, I'll just become a drug dealer. And then it hit me that I was really fucking bad at crime. I, I went back through all of the stuff from my adolescent criminal endeavors. And I thought, dude, if you ever fucking do that, you're just going to end up in jail. Terrible idea, Shane. At least I had the self-reflection to know that I was bad at crime. So I decided, you know what? Let me come up with a legal version of this. I didn't know it was impossible. I didn't know no one had ever done it before. I just thought if I could come up with a legal version of ecstasy using herbs and natural ingredients and get that out into the world, I could create an empire. This could be amazing. And I did it. I, I managed to get myself a girlfriend, which I don't know how I did being broke as I was. And her dad had some stuffy job. He was like an accountant or superintendent of some school district or something. So he would leave early in the morning. And as he left out the back door of this big, uh, at the front door of this big house, I would enter in through the back door and start cooking up prototypes in her kitchen every day, cooking them up and giving it to people in the neighborhood, the teenagers in the neighborhood, until one day we got a formula that worked. And now it What do you mean by worked, by the way? It was effective. It, uh, people were having a really good time on it, and they felt that it did what it claimed to do, which was to replicate the physical effects of ecstasy. Hmm. And how yeah. did you know what ingredients to put in? Like, how, how did you know how to even initiate this, the trial and error process for it? I didn't. That's, that's the most common question. But here's the thing. I had a grade school education. I wouldn't even be able to do, in, in those days especially, like long division. That's, that's, how, that's how advanced I was. But what I did have was a degree in getting my ass kicked and standing up again, a degree in, in not being super fragile, not being a snowflake, of not taking no for an answer, of constantly coming back until I got whatever the fuck I wanted. And that's what I did. I called people. I picked up. We had these books. This is Young explaining for you. We had these books called the Yellow Pages that had people's phone numbers in there. And I'd just start calling. I'd call herbalists. And 99% of them would say, fuck off. But there'd be that 1% that would say, sure, come on down, kid. And I'd come down and I picked up books. I went to the library and then I found the author's phone numbers in the yellow pages or the white pages. And I would call them and I say, hi, you wrote a book on this. I say, who the fuck is this? No one calls me. I said, great. Here's who I am. I'm going to create the biggest company the world's ever known for herbal drugs. Will you help me? And 99 out of a hundred times you'd hear a click, but every one time you'd get somebody that would say, sure, I'm bored. Let's go. And I took those yeses. And I figured out how to do it. I figured out how to mix what, and I got people to front me the ingredients. Remember, I had no money. I had no friends. I had this one girlfriend. That was it. And I got a working prototype, and I remember telling myself, this is it. Let's fucking go. Sink or swim. And I went to one of the biggest clubs at the time, 10,000-plus people, underground warehouse, walked straight up to the biggest drug dealer there. Now, this guy was scary. Now, this is what, downtown L.A.? This was in downtown L.A., yeah. Now, if you have tattoos on your face right now, you are a TikTok star. They give you a platinum record. They call you Post Malone. In the 1980s and 1990s, if you had tattoos on your face, it was a different story. People would walk the other side of the street if you came. People would look away from you. 
This man had tattoos on his neck and his face. He had the three little dot things, I think, meant to kill somebody in prison. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking up to him. He had bodyguards. He had beautiful girls around him, you know, all kinds of money. And he goes, look, I'm out of fucking supply. There's no ecstasy going around. And I said, oh, no, I don't. I, I, no, me, drugs? No, no, I don't want drugs. He said, what the fuck? Are you a cop? And starts patting me, and, and the bodyguards all stand up. It was like a movie. And I was like, okay, I'm probably going to die now. That's fine. But it's a good time to talk to this guy. So I said, look, I got this stuff. And, uh, and remember, back in those days, I didn't have money to, to buy the machine that made the capsules. So these were pills that I rolled by hand and then dried in my girlfriend's oven and then put in little baggies to make them look like drugs, to make them look like pills. And I had filled the backpack with him. I handed him a baggie and I said, hey, it's better than, better than ecstasy. And he goes, what the fuck is this shit? I'm going to fucking kill you. And I said, no, no. It's, he's like said, it's herbal ecstasy. I just mm -hmm. made it up in that moment. And he looks at me and he doesn't know what to make of it. And I figured in that moment that this would be a really good time to run away as fast as I could. But my feet were glued to the ground. And I, I remembered all those beatings in the schoolyard. I remembered all the times people made fun of me for not speaking English. And I remembered all that it took to get me to that moment in front of this guy. And I thought to myself, He's going to work for me. And I looked at him and I said, I think it's a good idea for you to sell this. You're going to go to jail. You're going to get into trouble. It's completely legal. And in that moment, it was, it was absolute synchronicity. Two people walked up to, to him with money in their hands. They're having a discussion. Those people aren't happy that he doesn't have the drugs. He's unhappy that he can't take their money. And he motions over to me. I hand him the bag. He grabs the entire backpack and he goes, come back in two hours. You better not be fucking with me. Mm -hmm. And he starts selling my product, a moment of, of craziness on his end, a, a, a poor decision maybe. Mm -hmm. Now, those were the longest two hours of my life. And I remember recounting in those two hours all the different excuses I was going to use to prevent this man from killing me that evening. I remember saying, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shine his shoes. I'm going to clean his car. I'll rotate his tires. I know how to do an oil change. I'll do an oil change. Whatever he wants, if this guy just doesn't kill me. And two hours pass, bodyguards call me over. He motions me to come forward, and I'm sweating. But once again, my feet glued to the ground looking at him. I fake a smile. He's sizing me up, silent, no emotions in his face. You can tell if this guy wanted to kill you or was your best friend. Couldn't tell. Looks straight at me and says, kid, when can you get me more? He had sold every single unit, and people were loving it. And it went from one guy to 10,000 guys to 100,000 guys. A lot of these guys became legitimized. They bought territories from me they bought retail franchises and a lot of them legitimized their business and it wasn't long before we were selling more herbal ecstasy than illicit ecstasy in the wow. streets larry flint what became one of our big distributors selling hmm. into all the sex and adult stores uh, hmm. around the world we were in every bookstore urban outfitters carried us gnc which is general nutrition center here in the states uh, all the big supermarkets 7-eleven we were everywhere now they come you know, did they come to you or did you reach out to them after it was uh making its way through the drug warehouse scene it caught on like wildfire and i was doing interviews and news and and I mean, we were it. I had my 15 minutes of fame. I mean, I'd walk into a restaurant, I'd walk into a store, people would, people would know who I am. 
And I remembered I had a collection of exotic cars, Lamborghinis, Ferraris, all that. And I would sleep like two hours. At this point, I had a factory. We had set everything up. I'd sleep on the factory floor for like two hours and then get in my car, crash for like half an hour and then walk into the office. And I remember drooling on the passenger seat of my brand new Lamborghini. Bad look, bad look, because I, I didn't sleep enough. And I just was like, okay, just if I close my eyes for 30 minutes, I can get back to work. Walked into my office. My secretary at the time was pale-faced like a ghost. Everybody was standing around, jaws dropped. The news broke that we had exceeded a billion dollars in revenue. Pre-internet, Ashton, mm -hmm. pre-social media, pre-Facebook, pre-cell phones, pre so No Kardashian endorsements even. No Kardashian endorsements, <laughs> yeah. And I remember having a panicked moment thinking, holy fuck, I don't know how much a billion dollars is. Is it 100 million? Is it 50 million? Like, I don't know. And then mm -hmm. the second thought that occurred to me was that maybe I should at this point get an accountant. And I learned a very important lesson, which I think will be really good for your viewers. And that's that when you're interviewing accountants, you should know that accountants are not the people that count the cash piled up in your office in duffel bags. That is not what accountants do. I had to learn that the hard way. Remember all the member for that. <laughs> they, didn't so that. Experience. they didn't teach me that at school. And, and from there, I went on to inventing all the technology for digital vaporization, uh, what now is the vape and, and what you see all derived from technology that I built. That company went public. Mm -hmm. I sold that company, exited in 2006. And then I moved on to creating uh, one of the best brain supplements on the market called Accelerol Focus Plus. And I learned that there was this little guy named Jeff Bezos. Everyone said he was a Silicon Valley nerd. And you could get a hold of Jeff Bezos in those days. He'd answer his phone. Mm -hmm. You can get him on email. And we heard through the grapevine that Jeff was opening up the Amazon platform to third-party sellers. Like, you and me, you can sell anything you want on there. I was like, dope. Let me sell Accelerol. $120 a unit. It was expensive in those days. And I thought, man, let me, let me sell this on Amazon. So I listed it on there, went to sleep, woke up the next morning. And we had thousands of orders at $120 a piece, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I said, holy shit, let me learn a little bit about this Jeff Bezos character. And as I read up on him, as I learned about Bezos, I realized this is not a chump. This is not mm -hmm. some little fucking nerd that's like <laughs> got excited. This is a beast. And this guy is building a disruptive e-commerce giant that is going to change the world, change commerce the same way Piggly Wiggly did by adding carts and letting people pick their own produce. And, and this is early I 2000s? Did, this would be 2010. 2009, mm -hmm. 2010, as Amazon was just opening up their seller central department mm -hmm. to third party sellers. So I, I, I started doing that, was very successful, become, became one of the leading experts in the Amazon field. And I decided to start a course, which I have by now, by the way, for any of your listeners, I got a one hour course, uh, everything from A to Z. How do you find a product? How do you get reviews? How do you sell? How do you storytell on the Amazon platform? And it's normally 200 bucks. I offer it for free. If you guys mention electile dysfunction and email me directly, I am darkzess, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com or fbasellercourse.com. Reach out to us if I can inspire you to succeed by selling on the Amazon platform. We're still at day one and it's ground floor. We appreciate that for, for the listeners, for sure. Take a step back for a second. So one of the interesting things about sort of growing up in LA is it's very unusual relative to almost any other city because it's there's so much wealth around you, but it's not only wealth around you. There's wealth in, a lot of wealth in San Francisco, although it's leaving. Uh, but it's it's in your face as well. It's not like that in places like San Francisco 
or or even New York to a certain extent. It's it's really out there in your face, and everybody's trying to you know uh, flex and uh, you know get that social proof, right? Um, is, where did your drive come from? Well, first of all, what was the impetus to, to even leave home at such a young age? Were you unhappy with your family and living at home and you just were very driven to, to go venture out on your own? Where did your drive come from? Was it because you sort of grew up in LA and you saw all these sorts of, uh, this, this wealth just ubiquitous around? I mean, I'll, I'll give you a quick quick little example. Of we, uh, for people who aren't who are a little bit unfamiliar with LA, we had a, uh, me and my friends were at Katsuya last week and you know, you just, there's like these, like a table of like 15 year old kids, you know, eating at this place. And it's like, you don't really see that so much in other places. Like it's like super expensive restaurant, you know, if you're 15 for sure. Um, and it's, it's everywhere. Right. So where, where did your drive come from and what was the impetus to, to go and strike it on your own? Yeah. We're home of the $7 latte, $7 coffee. Mm -hmm. It's amazing when I see people buying those things and I'm like, holy fuck, man. I'm like, we should probably reinvest that money. I make mm -hmm. my own coffee by the way. Most of the millionaires I know, billionaires too, make their own coffee. Yeah, I do too. Um, so there's two. One, I had a chip on my shoulder from being an immigrant, from always being treated less than. I believed I was less than. I believed that, hey, I'm this little Iranian kid, and Iranian is not the thing to be. The thing to be is you want to be American. You want to be part of this great country. And everybody beat the shit out of me to the point where – I told myself that, you know what, I'm going to show them. I tell people often this, that in life, success is the greatest revenge. If you're really mad at somebody and you want to exact revenge on them, be better. Become successful. There's nothing better than that. So I had that going for me. The other part was I wanted to be a part of this great wealth. I thought, man, this, I, I know this is the greatest country in the world. I know there's more opportunity here than anywhere else on the planet. How do you access that? There's no roadmap for that in the schools. They don't teach you how to become a fucking millionaire or billionaire the same way Amazon doesn't teach you how to succeed on their platform. Everybody wants you to make a little bit of money to be marginalized and to just fall in. And as, as one of my teachers told me, um, to be TikTok. They want people to drive the buses and work at the big box stores. They don't want you to break out. If you want to break out, if you want to make an impact, make a mark on the world, you can't fucking play by the rules. It doesn't work that way. And you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. You have to be willing to take risks. And for me, it was all about that. How do you think being an immigrant gave you uh, an advantage? So you mentioned chip on your shoulder, you know, it, I was talking about this in a previous podcast of mine. So, you know, the uh, Iranian-American immigrants, they might be the most successful uh, immigrant group in the United States. Um, if they're not number one, they're up there, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they're number one. Then you have another – then outside of them, you have another about two dozen immigrant groups who make more median income, more median family income than <laughs> the average white family. Um, and, you know, you, you mentioned Bezos. Bezos, the, the person who raised him as a father was an immigrant. Uh, you know, obviously the, the only person who's richer than him is an immigrant. So you have so many of the most important companies in the United States either started by immigrants or uh, first generation. Uh, what do you think about both from, from the Iranian culture perspective and just being an immigrant in general um, contributed to your, your work ethic or your success or the way you perceive things? Yeah, just like Koreans or Chinese Americans or mm -hmm. anybody else in this country, we fucking hustle. We're not expecting anybody to hand us anything. 
we're not expecting that we can slide by on our good looks and friendly network. We fucking get out there and we do whatever it takes. And I've got friends that are Korean. I've got friends that are Chinese, Filipino. When you come to this country, you follow the lead of your parents. And that's usually hard work. That's what's missing mostly from the TikTok, Instagram culture that we have now of the 30-minute millionaire and look at my jacuzzi in the back of my yacht and my fucking Lamborghinis and all that shit. You know, uh, uh, Chuck Chuck Palanchuk, the author of Fight Club, one of the best writers out there. I, I love his work. He said that we they, they promised us that we were going to be rock stars and gods, and mm-hmm. it turns out we're not. And there's going to be a lot of young people that are going to be really angry in a very short period of time. And that's what we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. We're seeing growing discontent in the country. We're seeing growing discontent in the world because you're seeing these symbols of wealth. You're seeing these guys with like the 50 bikini babes on the back of a boat shooting machine mm-hmm. guns and like living this life. And there's no path for the average person to get there. What they're missing is that there's an intermediate step that you got to fucking work hard and hustle. Only a few people, a handful of people are going to win the lottery, and it's probably not fucking you. So you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and do the fucking hard work. It's like, what are you doing? I'm fucking working. That's what I'm doing. It's hard fucking work, but that doesn't sell. That doesn't sell in Instagram ads. That doesn't sell in TikTok 20-second, hey, man, check out my Lambo. We chase the shiny thing, and especially your generation and the generation after you are, are busy chasing these shiny things and they're settling for less, not only less than what they deserve, but less than what they could have because they buy these lottery tickets. They buy into these fake gurus. They buy into all these people on TikTok and Instagram that are pitching this, this vast materialism, this promise mm-hmm. of, of, of glory with no substance behind it. And the few that are getting ahead is is the little immigrant kid like me who shows up and is like, I don't know what the fuck you guys are doing. Enjoy your drugs and partying. I'm going to be here fucking working. And yeah, I might fall on my face and I might fail over and over again, but I'm going to keep getting up. And you're either going to have to fucking kill me or give me my due. And when you see people with that attitude, you better stand the fuck back. Because if you look at people like Steve Jobs, you look at people like Elon Musk, you look at people like Jeff Bezos. That's who those guys are. Those are the nerds that got their asses kicked. Those are the guys that were willing to do whatever it took. You look at my friend, Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese's, mm. one of the first guys to hire Steve Jobs. This guy is right, fucking right. brilliant. Nolan started Atari. He founded Atari. He created video gaming as we fucking know it. And this guy, this guy to this day lives in his fucking workshop working his ass off. Mm. But it's not marketable. There's, there's, there's nothing to sell to tell people, hey, man, you might have to fucking get a job and work and figure out how you get to 1 million and then figure out how do you get to 10 million and how mm-hmm. you get to 100 million. Well, we're also told that uh, work ethic is a, is a uh, trait of white supremacy, right? That's, <laughs> that's the other problem, right? That, that's, uh, even this myth, the African-American Museum uh, in, in Washington, D.C. even had a uh, uh, d- display suggesting that and obviously this is what critical race theory stands for as well so you're telling me that uh, a work ethic is not a uh, white supremacist trait i've never heard that before that's interesting really no i mean right you have i, I know about the protestant work ethic right. and kind of the idea and look i'm i'm a believer in doing as little work as you need to to get the job done i don't believe in working for work's sake absolutely mm-hmm. yeah 
Um, and it's always better. Like I've got a boy, I've got an eight year old boy and I teach him to, you know, he goes, daddy, look how hard I worked. I'm like, that's great. Now go work smart. I teach him to work smart, but at the end of the day, it, it, it requires work. Anything you do requires work. There's that guy, Tim Ferriss. He wrote that book, Four Hour Work Week, and I love it. It had a lot of great concepts in it. I got news for you. Tim doesn't work four hours a week. Nobody does. Mm-hmm. Nobody who's successful works four hours a week. It's not. It's it's the truth. It's no. It is. It's very true. I think one of the things that always sort of um, troubles me is that you have. I'm not even sure. I'm not sure if, uh, if Bezos plays into it as well. I mean, certainly, you know, the Washington Post kind of does. Um, but you you have this mentality that there there are things that people, these hyper successful people, will tell their children, as we discussed, like you know, about work ethic, uh, about perfecting your craft. Um, but then the message being sent out to the public because it's it's more you know politically correct to to. Um, advance this message that, oh, you know, America is, is, is systematically racist and you'll never, you'll never get an even break and you'll never be able to succeed. That's also sort of the message that's being fed into young people. But those same kinds of people never actually tell their kids that, right? They, they, their own kids, you know, just like with, with the um, technological aspect, like Steve Jobs never had his kids uh, uh, be able to own a iPad, right? And a lot, of these, a lot of these social media guys, their kids aren't on social media, right? So it's like, I think that's part of the problem as well is that you have messaging that is tried and true and traditional that you give to your children about work ethic and about um, you know putting in the hours, being punctual, being responsible. But then the the message that's ubiquitous in the culture that some of these people partake in as well is is kind of the opposite of that. And just just another quick anecdote. So I don't know if you know this, but speaking of TikTok, like China, for example manipulates the algorithm in TikTok to, first of all, it doesn't work for children, uh, you know, after certain hours, I think after 10 PM, because they want the kids studying. Uh, and then it also tries to highlight more educational materials because they have a policy. They want their youngsters to be, you know, scientists or engineers or, or people who create value in society uh, as bad as China is not, not to defend China. Obviously there's a million things wrong with them, but on that aspect, they're, they made a very conscious decision not to promote this idea of being like a, a TikTok influencer and trying yeah. to gear people towards something of value um, as they deem it. In, in our culture, it seems like we have sort of sometimes the excesses of capitalism magnified, you know, like the, the guy with, you know, 50 cars and, you know, the, the paid supermodels to be around him and all that crap. But then also the demonization of, of the foundations of capitalism as well. And it's just, it's very odd. I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've noticed that as well, but it's, it's a very sort of, we'll, we'll, we'll re- love and respect Jay-Z and rap singers who, who have a, uh, you know, uh, the most ostentatious sorts of lifestyle that they'll promote. The same entities, the same media will also then combine that with a messaging that like, oh, you know, you just have no chance in America. It's systematically racist. Systems out against you. Well, so, so to your point, first and foremost, you think America's racist? You think schools are racist? You think someone's racist against you? Fucking good. Like that guy, uh, the Navy SEAL guy, Jocko Wilnick. I love his show and I love mm-hmm. the stuff that he says. If you think that these people are trying to bring you down, fucking good. They punch you in the face, great, get back up. Mm-hmm. We live in a society where <clears throat> they tell you that you're going to get a prize just for participation. 
you are going to get a second place, a third place, a fourth place trophy. And they lead our children and us to believe that that's okay. You think fucking the Chinese are sitting there, the Russians are sitting there telling their kids, telling their athletes, telling their future business people that it's okay to have second place? No. That's why they're fucking badass and dominating right now because they don't believe in that. There's no award for second place. Look at even the world of UFC. Look at the fighters that are coming out there. If you find yourself in a UFC octagon and the guy across from you has anything in his name that's Russian or half Russian, half Islamic, mm -hmm. you better you better be mm -hmm. fucking ready. And that's mm -hmm. a great example for the world, for life. And people go into life thinking, man, I'm going to be politically correct and I'm going to be woke and I'm going to I'm going to just give everybody their due and people are going to treat me fair. They're going to be out for a rude awakening. And I tell people this all the time. I feel that <clears throat> actually from my book, I wrote a book about the whole herbal ecstasy thing. It's right up there called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pill Cult. And it's on Audible and Amazon. So if you guys want to check it out, I'd appreciate that. Open the show notes, um, yep. Yeah, we just dropped the audiobook, but there's a, there's a hardcover and a Kindle and all that stuff. But I, 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 I say this quote usually when I give talks as well, and it's one of my favorite quotes, and that's that while you are sleeping, your enemies are planning your demise. And if you do not have any enemies, you are not trying hard enough. And I think that's really true. And, and you notice it as you start gaining traction in life. If you fly under the radar, you're always doing mediocre work, making mediocre money, living a mediocre life, dating the person that's left behind, not the person you really want, then you're probably fine. No one's coming after you. But if you are the type of person that makes waves, if you are a disruptor, if you are going to fucking go out there and make, make, make the world bend to your reality, do what Steve Jobs said in putting a dent in the universe – you're going to have people that fucking hate you. They'll hate you for who you are. They'll hate you for what you stand for. And they'll hate you for the fact that they're not doing what you're going to be doing. And you have to be ready for that. You have to be prepared for that. And I, I believe that you have to treat people with respect. You have to treat people with kindness. But at the same time, you also have to have an element of ruthlessness. You have to have an element of being able to go into the world and bend it to what you want to achieve. And that's how all the great people in the world who've achieved great things have done so by bending the will of other people and influencing other people to give them what they want. Is there anything of what, what's sort of the most consequential thing of maybe a bit substance that maybe you got from a book or from life experience um, that you think, let's say, you know, for people out there who are, as you reference, maybe lost in the world, don't know exactly what their path is. They're not happy with their job. They're not happy with their position. They know they want, they think they want something else. They know there, there must be something else, but they're, they're kind of unsure how to find it or what step to take. Uh, what's, what's something that, that you've come across on your journey throughout your several entrepreneurial ventures um, that helps sort of crystallize the way you, you think about things, the way you go about things, um, built skills that you think are essential. Yeah. Okay. So we can, we can start with just the, the mutual idea of respect, uh, uh, treating people with kindness, treating people with respect, treating people with the same dignity that you want people to treat you. That aside, I think that 
you can approach the world, and this is something uh, a good friend of mine, this guy's a, a multimillionaire, and he's made his fortune buying troubled companies, fixing them, and then selling them for hundreds of millions of dollars. His name's Wayne Boss. And he taught us three principles, which I think are really awesome. And I write about this again in my, in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Cult. And that's knowledge, courage, and action. It's a three-step process that can get you to anywhere you want to go. So the first step is knowledge. How do we get knowledge? Well, if we want to achieve any task, achieve a great accomplishment, do something amazing, put our dent in the universe, we need knowledge of how to do that. If we have that knowledge, we're set. You can buy knowledge. You can borrow knowledge. You can steal knowledge. You can rent knowledge. However you want to do it, if you have that knowledge, that know-how of how to do something, it takes you to the second stage. That second stage being courage. Having knowledge gives us the courage. If I called you today and I said, Ashton, bud, let's go. My buddy's got a, a plane. We're going to jump out into the desert here in L.A. You'd be like, whoa, Shaheen, like I know nothing about skydiving. That's crazy. No, no, thank you. But if me and you had been planning that for a month, we'd taken the courses and watched the videos and know how to pack our chutes and knew when to pull and where the backup chute is and what to do. And I called you, you'd be like, dude, let's go. This is awesome. I've been practicing this for, I've got that knowledge. Knowledge gives you courage. And the final thing is action. You have to act. You have to take action. And I teach my students, my Amazon students, who I teach how to build these Amazon businesses and to create this recurring revenue is that you have to have multiple streams of income. You have to have foundational thinking. It's not enough anymore to have just one thing. You need to have some money in cash flow positive real estate. You mm -hmm. need to have some money in the market, something that's compounding interest. You may need to have a job unless you have a trust fund or a rich daddy or mommy. You need to have some kind of job that keeps diapers on the kids, food on the table, that keeps your life stable and you as stress-free as possible. And finally, every single person should have an e-commerce business and you should take action on that today. Again, I remember, I, I want to remind everybody that I have this one hour course. I am offering to all your listeners and viewers for free, $0 cost. It costs zero to get in on the ground floor of Amazon and to start selling today. You can start an Amazon seller account. You can sell a multiple array of products. I can teach you how, there's no cost to it. Reach out to me at darkzess at gmail.com, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S -S at gmail.com. Mention electile dysfunction and Ashton, and I will give that to you. It's a $200 course for free. But that should be a part of everybody's uh, foundational plan. You should have four foundations, and one of them should be having some kind of e-commerce business. I don't care if it's Shopify, Etsy. We teach all of that, eBay, mm -hmm. all of those things. But you should have some part of your real estate in online real estate. And then in that way, you never have a bad day. You wake up, oh, real estate's down a couple percentage points. You don't care. It's cash flowing. Oh, well, uh, Amazon's not doing so great. People have gone back to retail, which I don't think is going to happen, but let's say it happens. No problem. You have your other investments, and you always have your job to, to fall back on, your career, whatever it is that's bringing you cash. And eventually, you get to the point where you can walk into the office and decide if you want to work there or if you want to walk up to your boss and give him the middle finger and tell him to fuck off because now you're making money on Amazon. Now you're making money on real estate. Now you're making money in all these other avenues, and, and that's what it's about ultimately. It's about freedom, being able to do what you want with who you want, when you want, and how you want, and I do that shit all the time. Now I'm, I'm at a place. I'm independently wealthy. I've got my cars and houses and all that stuff, and I'm a family guy. I don't party. I take my family to great places. We travel the world. We go to cool, cultural, ethnically diverse places, and we eat amazing food. We have amazing adventures. And while we're doing it, while we're sleeping, we're making money because somebody's buying our products on Amazon. 
and it's the greatest thing ever. I, I mean, you look at this guy, Jeff Bezos, people are like, oh, my God, like you were saying, people people make fun of him. People make fun of, oh, my God, he's got such wealth, and they, they act like it's a bad thing. And you're like, dude, sure, he's he's a billionaire. You're, you're fucking small-minded if you think that that's what's important. He's created more millionaires and will create more e-commerce millionaires and billionaires than anybody else in history. He will make Rockefeller, Ford, all those guys, all those old school money guys seem small because he's not only created wealth for himself. He's created a culture of wealth that's accessible to anybody who's willing to do the fucking work. I think multiple sources of income, absolutely, it's particularly passive income, particularly in today's world with automation, with all sorts of disruptive technologies are coming for people's jobs as well, even in the white collar sector, um, having that ability to rely on multiple sources uh, is, is so key. And that's one of the things I, I stress as well to my friends. You saw you saw the potential in Amazon uh, fairly early on. You went from the herbal ecstasy to the, to the vape um, manufacturing to Amazon, how do you go about analyzing business opportunities? And do you, was it a situation where you look, you, you considered like maybe dozens and dozens of things, and then you you analyze it in terms of what could get, deliver you some of the most growth that you can uh, create value in? Um, what was your thought process like when you jump from one thing to another? I don't really analyze anymore. I I did in the early days when I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life, but now. And in recent years, I follow my gut. And it's a difficult thing. It's a tricky thing. They say, uh, play your hunch, it'll have your lunch. You have to be very attuned to what the right intuition is. You have to be very attuned to when you are in what Csikszentmihalyi talks about in his book, Flow, when you are in a flow state. And you have to know exactly what that feels like. With herbal ecstasy, I was in the flow. Everywhere I went, there'd be an opportunity. I'd be on a train in Paris, and there'd be a guy reading about me on the newspaper in front of me, and he'd turn over and say, hey, I'd love to sell the stuff in Paris. And I'd sit next to him. We'd have some cheese and whatever else it was they would sell on those trains. And by the time I got off, that guy would be my distributor in Paris. When you're in the flow, these things happen, but you have to know how to get into a flow state. You have to know when your intuition leads you to something that's right when you have that feeling. And when it's leading you to something misleading, when you have a cognitive bias that may be misleading you. And that's really mostly how I decide now. I follow my gut. And with your gut, would you say that, because I think there's two, this is one of the things that I sort of uh, think about as well. So when we have these intuitive feelings, would you say that it's based on prior knowledge and research that you did that helps you make that sort of informed decision to know that? when to listen to your gut and when it's it's the right time to move like it's not just something you wake up with is it something that is itself based on the foundation of constantly learning yeah that's a good question so let me put it to you this way it is something that you wake up with but it's a dull tool that you need to sharpen mm -hmm. so everybody has intuition and everybody knows how to be in the flow and to be synchronistic but as we get older we forget we forget because the world tells us, no, things, things work this way and things work that way. And you get caught up in other people's emotions and you fall into the hamster wheel of, hey, I wake up in the morning, I go do this and then this happens and then I sleep and then I repeat. And then before they know it, most people wake up and they're middle-aged and they're fat and they're fucking wondering why they're doing what they're doing. So learning how to be an introspective person, super important. Self-reflection, super important. Looking back at your mistakes. Very important. 
having people around you. Like we have a mastermind in my Amazon course where we've got a hundred sellers now that are helping each other succeed, but having people around you that are honest, that can give you honest feedback that they can say, Ashton, you're an asshole, man. And you can go, dude, you're right. I'm an asshole. Let me fucking improve. Or Ashton, you're fucking great. And you're like, yeah, I'm pretty fucking good at that. But you need people around you that will tell it to you how it is. And I, I value and appreciate my friends so much and the people in the masterminds that I'm in so much because they're not going to lie to me. And there was a period of time in my life where I just had yes people around. And I, I, we all know people like this. You know people like that where these people are hanging around and all the people that are hanging around them think everything that falls out of their mouth is gold. And they're like, wow, man, yeah, yeah. And that person's saying, you're like, did he just fucking say that? That's some bullshit. That guy just said that and you guys are all agreeing with him. That's a losing proposition. That's when you know somebody's about to go down because they don't have truthful, honest feedback on what their intuitions are. And a part of it, Ashton, is really just being able to test your ideas in a safe way, in a way that's not going to destroy you monetarily, in a way that's not going to destroy you financially, and to be able to make mistakes and to rise up. And I tell people this oftentimes that you have to go out there and seek failure. People say to me, well, Shaheem, what do you mean? I mean, I'm, I want to succeed. I want to make money. I want to be rich like you. What do you mean seek failure? I said, yeah, but you can't do that until you fail. You look at a guy like Michael Jordan. A, I love the Michael Jordan documentary when you're watching it. And we think this is a guy that makes every shot, but he's only made some. You don't see the ones that he's missed. And that's the thing you have to remember. He had to miss a lot of shots to make the ones when they count. And at the end of the day, life comes down to that, Ashton. It comes down to when it counts, can you make the, the shot? Can you make the points when it counts, when it matters? And you need the preparation beforehand to uh, put yourself in that position. I think uh, having, like I said, yeah, maybe, maybe that goes back to our original sort of inquiry about uh, immigrant families, I think there, <laughs> there's something about the, you know, the, just speaking anecdotally, the, they have they tend to be much more honest sometimes to the downside, right? Well, and you know they'll they'll tell you, oh no, that's shit, right? I think we need a bit more of that, and that's that's part of I think American culture that's changed as well. And you still you'll still see I, I think people in in the southern parts of the United States still are more like that. It's more of a traditional thing. They're more like the immigrant. Uh, example I gave, well, they'll sort of tell you how it is, but the whole participation trophy culture, uh, you know, where people are just told how, how, uh, you know, great they are and they shouldn't feel bad if they failed at something. Um, you, well, you shouldn't feel bad if you felt something, but they, they shouldn't feel bad if they, if they didn't try at something and it's not their fault and they couldn't have done any better. You know, that, that sort of doting and, and pampering and bigotry, soft expectations, uh, I think really is, is becoming a perverse thing, you know, that, that little saying about uh, hard times make strong men, strong men make easy times, easy times make weak men, right? Hopefully we don't have to experience the, the deleterious consequences of that, but it really needs to change. What, what's your biggest failure? Man, there's been a lot of failures, mm -hmm. but I think over time I've had a few successes and I made them count and a bunch of uh, failures where, you know, I mean, obviously in the product space, I've had lots mm. of products that have failed that I thought were stupid. Um, I think in generalities, if we want to speak in just general terms, I think my biggest failure was being an innovator 
And I think one of the most expensive things that you can do is innovating. And innovation is the longest, hardest path to success. I think innovation is the wrong path to success for anybody who wants to make money at a quick pace. Why? Because with innovation comes education. You have to educate people why they need something. And that education comes at a cost. When I met to the vaporizer, there was no vaporizer. People were like, oh, okay, well, I can smoke. And I'd be like, yeah, but we have this technology creates a mist of vapor, no smoke, no tar, no carbon monoxide, the three carcinogenic elements. They'd be like, cool. Why do I need that? I'd be like, well, you're going to die of fucking cancer. Oh, okay. Now I have to believe you. So show me the proof. And it gets into this long educational process, which took how many years for vaping to take off, right? I, I came up yeah. with that shit in the 1990s, oh, wow. okay. in the, in the mid 1990s. And it, it was just until just after legalization where people started really, really using it. Mm -hmm. And it was a very expensive practice and it didn't make me very rich or, or much richer than where I was. I mean, I made some money from it. It was good. It was a great living and I had a nice exit and comfortable and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the guys that really made the money are the guys that came after. It's like Steve Jobs didn't invent the touch, touchless right. mobile phone, mm -hmm. but he told a better story. And similarly, what we teach people on Amazon is don't reinvent the fucking wheel, man. Don't go out there and innovate. Instead, find a niche, find the vulnerability and go in and dominate and tell a better story, offer more value. There's a lot more quicker paths to making great wealth than innovating. Leave the innovation to the big companies and the people who have all the time in the world. What are you most concerned about in society? Or you can, you can look at it from a either world perspective or a national perspective or societal perspective. Uh, and what's something that gives you the most hope? I think what gives me the most hope is kids like my kid. Um, I love them. And, and you'll see, do you have any kids Ashton? No. Yeah. You'll see when you have a kid, um, it, it, it changes your life. It, it really is the epitome of hope. It's the epitome of all things good. When you see somebody who's untainted by the ways of the world, go into it with fresh, naive eyes and an open heart is really beautiful and heartwarming. And I, I love to see that. I think the thing that gives me the most, I guess, uh, concern in the world um, is the rise of a culture that is neglecting what made this country great. That's neglecting that competition is a good thing, that having thick skin is a good thing. That people being offensive, that's fine. Like I said, there's a lot of assholes in the world. There's people that hate me. There's people that hate you. We, we all have enemies, and that's fine. This country was built on freedom of speech. It was built on freedoms, and that's what makes this country great. And if we keep telling people what they can't do, if we keep restricting things and, and narrowing down and tightening and tightening that noose, that's, I think, the most dangerous thing. If we keep restricting our entrepreneurs, if we make the entrepreneurial field a dangerous one by having laws where everyone's getting sued all the time and everybody has to be worried about what you can say and what you can't say. Look, I understand that there should be rules and laws in the workplace to protect people from egregious humans like the uh, – the, who's the Hollywood producer guy that like – 
Yeah, who's just this like gluttonous fucking human being mm -hmm. that's really taking advantage of people. I get that. I get that. And you need laws for, for that type of thing. But in general, a lot of the stuff that's happening is, is for monetary gain. And a lot of the claims that people are making are for monetary gain. And that's killing entrepreneurship. That's killing our mid-sized businesses. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we got to just fucking get back to work. Because like I said, it, a, 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 even a message for America is that while you are sleeping, your enemies are planning your fucking demise. And you look at other countries, you look at the Russians, you look at the Chinese, you look at all these other countries. These guys aren't fucking sleeping. They're not worried about little laws like, oh, my God, Judy said this to Johnny in the workplace. They're not, there's none of that shit. They're fucking thinking, man, this is how we're going to fucking hack their systems and destroy their, their entrepreneurship. And we're sitting back there worried about, oh, my God, this and that. It's like mm -hmm. those things work themselves out. And, yes, you do have to have equality and fairness. And like I said, treat people with respect. And, and, and you need protections against, like, egregious offenders. But what's missing in the world now is conversations that are nuanced. And that's because we've been dumbed down by this whole TikTok Instagram culture. Again, back to that is the fact that people want black or white. Is he a good person or a bad person? Is this right or is it wrong? Are you conservative or liberal? Just let me know. Well, I'm conservative on some things. I'm liberal on other things. I, I'd like to have my own opinions. Oh, well, I, I just don't know where you're coming from. You're not one of us. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what happens. And that's what's happening now. We see it more and more. We see it with COVID. We see it with everything that's going on around us right now is that nuance is lost. Oh, are you for the vaccine? Or are you against the COVID vaccine? Well, I'm, I'm for it for some people and against it for other people. So can we have a conversation? Can we have a nuanced conversation? No, you're either with us or, or, or against us. Right. You're either an anti-vaxxer or you're a vaxxer. Well, what if I want to have my own opinion on something? What if I want to do my own research? It's, it's no longer acceptable. And what we're seeing is a narrowing of these freedoms. And I think that's what we're concerned about. That's the danger. I, I agree completely with everything you said. Uh, last, last question. So in a world full of distractions uh, and Instagram and TikTok and social media and the media and, you know, every, everything, everything's a distraction these days, right? There's, there's so many things are out to get your time and attention and money. And it's so ubiquitous, the, the amount of things that are trying to, and video games, of course, that's probably the biggest one. How do you maintain focus? How, you personally, how do you maintain focus on executing so this is another thing I, I see a lot, particularly I think with a lot of people my age. How do you maintain focus on executing your vision in a world full of distraction? Like, what do you do? Do you just put your phone aside and you know only limit yourself on Twitter or something for like the last hour of the day? How, how do you do it? You got to become a flow state junkie. You got to seek out that that spot, that space. And I teach this in my Amazon course. So anybody that's interested. Join up, reach out to me, darkzess at gmail.com, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S -S at gmail.com. I'll send you the course for free. And if you want to join us, that'd be great. But I tell people, become a junkie of the flow state. Find out how you get into that flow state. And at the end of the day, you do you. I know a lot of people, they worry about, they get the news. Oh my God, there's this, there's that, there's rioting in the streets. There's this, there's COVID-19, Comnicrom, Omnicrom, Domnicrom. There's all this like different stuff going on. And it's like, no, you do you. You stay on fucking rails. You get blinders and you figure out what your mission is and you fucking go after it and you do you. You take care of yourself. You take care of your family first and foremost. Family first always. That's it. Start with yourself. Start with yourself. 
then work your way down to your family and, and make yourself happy, make yourself healthy, make yourself successful. Success is the greatest revenge. And when you're successful, when you're empowered financially, when you're empowered physically, when you are empowered emotionally, then you can be of a place where you help other people. And by your own energy, by, by the fact that you are this person, you bring other people up. And that's the secret. When you walk into a room and you see somebody who's got this like feeling about them and you spend a few minutes with this person, you just feel fucking great. And they didn't even say anything to you. You're just hanging out with them and you're in their presence. It's because this person has done that work. And that's what I encourage people to do. Focus on you. You do you. You focus on what's going to be best for you and your family and try not to get caught up in all these distractions. Sure, if they're coming banging on your door with tiki torches saying stupid shit, that's a good time for you to worry. But short of that, just keep fucking focusing on what you're doing. Shaheen Cheyenne, thank you so much for being with me. I think it was an amazing discussion. And uh, we'll, we'll put in the show notes your uh, book and where to reach you. We have a podcast too, Ashton. We'll probably rebroadcast this on there as well. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. I co-host it with a guy named Bart Baggett, who's a super fun show host. Um, so check us out on YouTube, Amazon, sorry, YouTube, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. It's called Hack and Grow Rich. Uh, the book is available now on Amazon and Audible. It's called Billion, How I Became King of the Thrill Pull Cult. And anybody that's interested in learning how to sell on Amazon so you do not get electile dysfunction, reach out to me at darkzess, D-A-R-K-Z-E-S-S at gmail.com. Use electile dysfunction or Ashton in the subject heading, and I will send you my $200 one-hour crash course for free. Thank you, my man. Thanks for having me on, Ashton. I really appreciate it, buddy. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast, and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.